0: Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish.
1: And I'm Clinton Crute. We're the editors of Film Comment.
0: This week on the podcast, we went to school with two learned Film Comment veterans, Nellie Killian, curator and Film Comment contributing editor, and Ina Archer, artist, critic, and media preservationist at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Each of them assigned as a movie to watch. We're calling this episode homework, but fear not, their selections were far from a chore.
1: Aina selected Murder at the Vanities, Mitchell licensed madcap pre-code caper, while Nellie suggested Honey Moccasin, a 1998 experimental gem by indigenous filmmaker Shelley Nero. Both selections were zany, incredibly inventive and very much of their times. They made for a great double feature.
0: We learned a lot and hope you will, too. If you're wondering, yes, this will be on the final exam.
1: Today, we have two great guests, veterans of the Film Comment podcast, and we're happy to welcome them on. Nellie, do you want to introduce yourself?
2: Sure. Uh, my name is Nellie Killian. I'm a contributing editor at Film Comment and uh, a programmer, Um, Some recent programs that you can access from your home uh, on the Criterion channel are Close to Home, um, a series of films uh, the director made in their actual homes, and uh, Tell Me, um, a series of feminist films from really the last 50 years, but a lot of them in the 70s.
1: Yeah, two really great programs. Please do check them out. And our other guest is Ina.
3: Hi, uh, I'm Ina Archer, and um, I'm a media conservation and digitization specialist at the Museum of African American History and Culture at the uh, Smithsonian, Um, and I'm uh, primarily a a video and filmmaker visual artist, and I just recently um, had my first solo outing at Freeze, um, New York, so I've been very happy about that and working with Microscope Gallery, um, once in Brooklyn and now in Chelsea. Yeah,
1: I saw that. That seemed really great. I intend to check it out.
0: What's the, what's the solo outing? Tell us a little more. Uh, what's the work? Uh, the work
3: is a, um, something that I started uh, way back when with Creative Capital. I, I got a grant for that, and it's, about, um, it's called The Lincoln Film Conspiracy. And it's about the um, disappearance impossible alien abduction of early black cinema um, and the resulting um, universe thinking that um, the earth is represented by glamorous African American people. so um, it's uh, it's a, in this iteration it was a three screen um, three monitor installation that kind of shows the the Uh, story of what happened to the films possibly. Uh, Were they blown up or or disguised by an actor trying to pass? Um, Actual footage from the Lincoln Motion Picture Company um, that's from from 1921 and a channel that sort of imagines the future um, and these kind of made up films that I created in order to represent the films that are from the company.
0: Wow.
1: I feel like there's a good feature there. Like I would watch this sci-fi feature.
3: I think that will be an iteration eventually. <laughs> you know, if there was another iteration, I, I would love to to be a part of that. But also maybe let someone topical. else take the rings. Well, yeah.
1: With the alien stuff. That's what I'm Definitely, to. I
3: know. <laughs> Finally, I don't know if you guys read that New, York. Out. Yeah, yeah. that New
1: Yorker article. <laughs> it's about time. Okay, Mm -hmm. we're going to turn this, we're going to turn to aliens now for a while. (laughs) Alien autopsies and whatnot. So, today we thought we'd do something we called homework. And
0: because we we, have such, um, I should say, experienced and knowledgeable guests, we thought, why not exploit this opportunity to learn something? Right.
1: (laughs) We want to turn every opportunity into a learning opportunity. We asked each of our guests to assign. A movie to watch and I not assigned an interesting movie and that was pretty much a total surprise, something I hadn't considered watching before, but was happy that I did. Nellie, do you wanna kind of walk us through this film?
2: Sure. Um it is <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in some ways I feel like a plot description you know, doesn't really do the film justice. It's a uh, Mitchell. And Nellie,
0: just to, sorry, just to clarify, you hadn't seen it before, right? No, I hadn't. and So I'd this been, is your first impression.
2: Yeah. I've been meaning to dip into these Mitchell Leeson movies uh, that are available on Criterion channel right now. And this is one that I hadn't seen. Um, and it's, I think it's like on the cusp of the code, uh, a musical. And um, I mean, it's, the code is definitely not taking effect. Uh, also,
0: the movie, the movie is Murder <laughs> yeah. at the Vanities. We didn't say the name of oh, the movie. Oh, sorry.
2: <laughs> sorry, I didn't realize we hadn't said the name. Murder at the Vanities. I believe it was adapted from a stage show. Uh, and yeah, it's it kind
1: of, it's like a, what's the, noises is off kind of type of thing.
2: Yeah, or like a Zigfield Follies type right, of thing right. where it's, uh, you know, clearly this um, impulse to, Put all of these musical numbers into a sort of cavalcade. Um, but with the added bonus of a backstage murder mystery, Leeson was the art director for a lot of DeMille projects. And I think you can really see the sort of like, you know, maximalist approach uh, in a lot of the numbers. Um, there are just, you know, a thousand uh chorus girls, like multiple orchestras. I mean, who done it? Uh, (laughs) It could be anyone. So on top of it, just having this kind of, like I said, uh, you know, anthology feeling of you get one number after another and the pleasure is really in the individual numbers. The individual numbers themselves are quite strange, like a lot of sort of exotica uh, a sort of celebration of or not a celebration of marijuana, a sort of dirge
0: about marijuana <laughs> <laughs> about the
1: like about the pleasures of marijuana though right it's definitely yeah,
0: the escapist pleasures right. uh, but it's and... very downbeat yeah. right. right like she's it's she's not singing...
1: trippy. No. Yeah.
0: no
2: no she's singing <laughs>
1: about like how marijuana can bring back her... if she... Will bring back her her distant lover, uh, even though it's she knows it's not real. The marijuana yeah. will make her feel like he, like he's there again, type of thing.
2: Yeah, a bit of a a downer, but um, also, you know, the wonders of marijuana on stage in 1934
1: <laughs> on Broadway, no less. Yeah, I mean, I'd
2: love to hear more about uh, why I
3: picked this one. <laughs> um, yeah, I was as I, I was saying, you know, you're welcome to yeah. all of you. <laughs> you know, then when I got my assignment, I was kind of like, oh no, uh, what have I done? <laughs> but um, they're perfect
2: compliments, which I, I like, really are. I, are. There's a connection are. there for sure. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> so so I can't wait to to hear more of those connections. But um, I was also really interested in in, in Mitchell Lyson and. Um, a friend of mine really loves the film Mid- Midnight. And it's a friend who is not necessarily a consumer of old-timey films. And so when I saw them on Criterion, I was kind of like, oh my goodness, Murder at the Vanities. I love that film. Um, I'm very nostalgic about it because it reminds me of Summer and Film Forum and you know, um, pre-code programs.
1: So this is a film that you were already
3: familiar with. I had not watched it for years. And, um, and when uh, my friend mentioned it, I was kind of like, wait, there's that movie. There's a, there's a minstrel show in it, which it always would be of interest to me. And there, there's not directly. But, um, but I was kind of like, there's, there's a really crazy song with Kitty Carlisle. And then when I went to see it again, I realized that the thing that I was really thinking about, which that's a whole thing in and of itself, but that um, there's a, that Duke Ellington is in the film and just kind of explodes out of this. Uh, you know, it's like the return of the repressed and then exploding out of this. you know. I think the um, scene
1: is actually called the rape of the Rhapsody. I mean, there's a whole, there's like a lot going on in that, in that yeah. sequence.
3: So, so, you know, the short answer is I, I really, Wanted to revisit the film and to, to hear if it kind of holds up in quotations in a way, if the experience for me was felt the same as it did in the past. And it's very connected to the the, the work that I do as far as this uh, kind of masquerade in these different kinds of ways. And plus this just complete uh, display of women and not only display, but sort of assigning them a lot of power when really they're decor decoration throughout the film so that's i guess part part of the reason
0: i just wanted to give like a basic sketch of the plot uh to, for anyone who hasn't i mean yeah it. I i don't know should i try
1: yeah, <laughs> might, yeah. might as well i guess i mean the plot is sort of immaterial
0: Right, but just to contextualize the Duke Ellington number for instance, you know, I do think I it's so fascinating. It took me by complete surprise too because it's not the uh, the kind of film that really builds that gives you any sense that it is going to have this sudden uh, you know, I wouldn't call it commentary, but this aspect of like you said racial masquerade and almost like racial rivalry, right? Because there's a white conductor and there's a white orchestra and The I guess the narrative idea of the show is that his orchestra goes wrong, like he's not able to control the music and it goes out of tune. And suddenly from behind the stage, Duke Ellington and his jazz players kind of burst upon the stage and they deliver this amazing and beautiful and transcendent, you know, uh, jazz performance. And it's sort of that they rob The white guys off the stage. So Gertrude Michael, who plays Rita Ross, who's kind of the vampish character in this, uh, comes on stage and she describes the performance as full of tropic heat and, you know, with (laughs) little elements of voodoo and these girls coming and, you know, shaking their little things. And it's so unusual. I'm curious. I'm curious what uh, Ina, you made of it, but also Nelly. I'm not very well versed in pre-code movies, so this was a really fun um watch for me and I'm curious how it fits into the context of pre code movies. I mean, were were these kinds of uh interludes common? You know, what what's really going on?
3: I think each time we try to describe the plot is like it, you know some aspect of it pops out because the plot is in some ways immaterial, but I think also really regular. You know, it's like a backstage musical, so the emphasis is on the show, and and the show usually exists you know in a much bigger space uh, diegetically than it could on an actual stage. And I think the model for this is Earl Carroll's uh, *Vanity*, so it's a an existing Zigfield like. Pageant show, and then it's using Jack Oakey and other performers who would have been familiar at that time.
1: He plays the the producer, kind of.
3: He's the uh, yeah, the producer who was just trying to get his show done. And I think the whole idea of you know earlier than the Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland, let's put on a show. This is more like you know we're doing the show. It's not as overt as some Busby Berkeley, where everyone's financial future is invested in the success of the show. But certainly there is a huge need to keep the show going, even though people are being murdered right and left. (laughs) I
1: think Jack Oki says like he implies that there is a financial need from his from his point of view, where like, mm -hmm. you know, he'll have to go back to his parents house or something. Oh, I can't remember (laughs) what he says. There's a lot of snappy patter. And
3: there's also a romance that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's um sort of endangered with losing his big stars uh to marriage, and so leaving the show kind of without its its um its uh central performers, and then there's also a certain amount of professional jealousy as well as sexual jealousy. So I think that all of those things tend to come up in movies and then plus the, you know, the, the whole murder aspect. And so I think that that was kind of clear from pre-killed movies and this kind of vamp figure who I certainly would want to kill. I think all of those things are, are, are very familiar. I think to me that they're all kind of put together in one film, but within a backstage musical is what makes it kind of stand out in a way.
2: Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, the number we were just talking about, Rita, I forget what her name is in the... Rita Ross. Rita Ross. Ross. Such a glamorous name. Rita
3: Ross. (laughs) Rolling R's.
2: Who's sort of the
1: villainous of the... Yeah,
2: I was going to say that, like, the ways in which the backstage uh, drama and the stage drama come together, like, right before she sort of inserts herself into the Duke Ellington number, (laughs) which is her, like... Uh, the like maid that helps her (laughs) and then just like walks on stage. (laughs) (laughs) It's like not very ambiguous that she's like a problematic figure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There is some interesting stuff I thought you know the ways in which the sort of trappings of genre uh, and the trappings of the plot sort of work with the, um, the images of women and stuff and it what you were saying before made me think about the fact that like so much of the drama is this uh the sort of head of the production and the police inspector sort of trying to figure out what's happening. Meanwhile, like a number of women who they're com- consistently dismissing just actually know what happened and could have told them if you know it could have been a 20-minute right. movie. Uh, but like no one wants to listen to them.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and there's that that recurring almost like a joke of this uh little bimbo type character, right? She's one of the players and she keeps coming up to the producer. And I didn't think she had anything to say either, right? The way she presents herself, the performance is very much coded like she wants, um, you know, she wants to have sex or or something like that. Uh, She's presented as very vacuous. And the producer, the police officer, who's this dimwit, Uh, who's assigned to this
1: case just (laughs) leering at everybody yeah Yeah. he's just
0: leering and he's also constantly
1: distracted from the case
0: right he keeps missing clues because he's distracted by the women uh you know he has this line that i thought was very funny he watches a line of the performance go by and he says oh they they look like they have clues
1: he says These babies are suspicious. All these babies are (laughs) suspicious. I think he said something like that.
0: And it turns out that the bimbo character actually knew what was going on all along. And if they just paused and listened to her, yeah, like you said, it would have been a
2: 15-minute movie. I mean, as did the maid who, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, like they know, like if they'd actually questioned people. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: The uh, Rita Ross's made Norma. Is that who you're talking about? Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: And the fact that just because Eric Lander, who's the star uh, of the show, and you know the wardrobe lady, is his mother, and they're fugitives from Vienna, there's this whole backstory. But the simple fact that he treats Norma well, and so she cops to cops to it, and basically also protects his and his mother's real identity. It's so simple, and it's so basic. She just wanted to be treated like a human being, guys. Yeah. <laughs> She's creepy <laughs> too. Like she abuses her.
1: I feel like that performance is actually stands out. Norma, the creepy maid, like she, mm-hmm. she just like the look in her eyes is actually kind of frightening.
3: Yeah, she seems like she would most definitely be a murderer. You
1: know? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, early on I kind of pegged her as a as a as a suspect.
0: But I felt like it couldn't be that the maid did it. Come on. (laughs) I mean too obvious.
2: She also has such justified anger towards Rita Mm -hmm. that like when Rita gets shot, it's like Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean the whole thing is just nonsense though. Like the plot plot plot-wise, like this these justifications, it's just I feel like it's all an excuse for these big musical numbers and for just the froth of emotion and and some kind of drama happening and to get people angry i mean one of the things that struck me throughout is how the actors will be backstage and they'll somebody they'll be like i didn't murder anybody you're accusing me of murder and they're like, "Your big number is on. You're on now." And, yeah. he, and he just goes out and like does the number. Like, what professionals, right? I'm, I'm, I know. I'm, yeah, <laughs>
0: no one ha- even hesitated for a second when Rita Ross died. I mean, not one, uh, you know, expression of shock, not one tear. And I have to say, the whole thing is very impressive. Yes, it's kind of nonsense, but also in terms of writing and craft keeping all these things going, you know, uh, and setting it to the schedule sense. of the show. <laughs> but, you know, it's, sort of, it's like rules of the game, right? The Renoir film. It's that basic template of this one space. You have a closed space, multiple things going on, all set to different time cues, and everything has to happen exactly at the right time because of the performance. And so these little parcels of interactions and scenes all woven together into this maze it was quite impressive to watch and then of course every little scene like that ends in a beautiful number i mean the number Mm -hmm. with eric lander singing and the women uh i guess pretending to be an ocean is the best way i can describe it feathers as the waves yeah Yeah. Yeah. gorgeous oh my god Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and the people popping
3: up out of the out of the waves of feathers so I was thinking that was their sort of uh, Pacific Islander, um, um, you know, scene and the marijuana you know, at the border, strangely, you know, just these crazy.
1: Has sort of a mariachi thing happening yeah. in the marijuana <laughs> song, which makes no sense.
3: And then the um, the first number where it's talking about the fates of all of these women and they're, you know, what they do with their careers in Hollywood or, or whatever, um, that they're positioned as in, as makeup cases inside of cases in glass um, perfume
0: jars in very skimpy clothing too. I mean, if any, yeah. Wow, <laughs> it's also risky and beautiful, yeah.
1: It's interesting, though, that you talk about how well the plot is handled, because I think uh, Lysen has a reputation as sort of an esthete more than somebody who is a master of plot. Do either of you guys have a deeper knowledge of his work?
2: Well, he he had a background as an art director, which I feel like maybe prejudices people towards that. And he worked with a lot of great screenwriters. I mean, he made a couple films with Billy Wilder.
1: And Sturt, Preston Surgis.
2: And Preston Surgis. I was, like, I, I was like, there's a few like really impressive things. Like, I mean, I think the sort of myth that a director has to be a good writer um, is maybe something that hurts him a little bit. I mean, I've seen maybe five or six of his movies, and I think I like all of them.
1: Yeah, he seems like a really solid like his 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 work is very solid. I haven't seen much, um, but uh, reading about him, he he was a he's a seems like a very interesting figure to me.
2: I I do sort of think you know thinking about the way the plot's handled I especially early in quarantine I was really drawn to a lot of genre stuff from like the 30s 40s 50s where to a certain extent like the plot machinations are like part of it but it's about so many other things the performance the direction you know all of these things and you know you watch a movie like this and there's just so much talent on display. I mean, every frame is, you know, the way it's designed, the sort of the, uh, the musicians, the dancers, like there's no like huge stars in the film, but like everyone's like, oh, okay, you know, pretty good. Kind of funny. Like the woman who plays. Well, Duke really Ellington. Good. Oh, well, so, yes. I, I wasn't including him as the, One of the acting stars. But <laughs>
3: yeah. No, um, but
2: I, I do feel like there's a certain level at which, It's like the machines really humming along. Mm -hmm. And I think the genre elements are part of that.
1: I mean, the sense of space is also really pretty refined in in this movie. You you have a real clear understanding of where of the different levels of the backstage area. There's a staircase. There's uh, dressing rooms and where the dressing rooms are in relation to each other, where this catwalk is, where things happen, where that is all relative to the backstage area right behind the stage and then the stage itself which i think is actually pretty hard to convey or to to not make extremely confusing um which is impressive
0: absolutely and one of the murders takes place in the rafters and it's interesting how the murder's Uh, infringe upon the performance or the performances are used to, you know, signal the murders and their impact. So the first murder happens in the rafters and something drips down, a liquid, maybe it's blood, maybe it's something else. I think it turns out to be maybe something else. And that drops on a performer at the end of one of the, you know, big sequences.
1: Oh, when she pours acid, she's trying to pour acid on them or
0: something.
1: Yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> Jealous rage.
0: With the, with the woman detective. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then the second one takes place during a performance, right? When there's a fake machine gun fired. I mean, it's quite disturbing because it's at the end of the Duke Ellington sequence and the pissed off white director comes with a machine gun. It kind of set off some triggers <laughs> yeah. in my yeah. mind. Uh, and you know it's yep. during then that the other murder happens, which you you don't know if it's if the if the second victim I, I don't know if I should spoil. I guess this is a movie <laughs> from the nineteen thirties. I can spoil I think it.
1: You can spoil. Spoil.
0: <laughs> but you freely. know, Rita Ross dies and you don't know if it's by gunshot wound, if what happens until later. And so that was really fun, too, how these elements were used. And and I think what was striking for me is that you often think of musicals as, um, especially for me, um, you know, I'm very used to Bollywood musicals uh, and, you know, thinking of the musical as a form in which the performance interrupts the flow of the narrative, you know, so it's something that's self-contained and it's inserted within the chronological flow of the narrative. I just was very fascinated by how the actual making of the performance was woven into the plot. So you never are stepping out of the show in order to watch the plot progress. It's all woven very seamlessly into the show itself. And so even when you're watching them dance and sing, you're thinking about what they're actually thinking in that moment because they've just come from scenes of being told about a murder or being accused of murder. I
3: just wanted to mention a link to Kitty Carlisle, who used to appear. So an opera singer, first of all, she's presented with such dignity, although she is also almost naked at one point when she's finding out that she's uh, the marriage might be put off. There's a, a great uh, YouTube video of all of her entrances on What's My Line? So she was a a regular on that TV show. And I think it was Jeff Martin who pointed it out to me where it's just one entrance after another with one, you know, extremely fabulous outfit over and over again. So maybe we could link to that because I think it would be a nice way to open up for for Murder at the (laughs) Vanities with this kind of pageantry that she was uh, clearly used to. I also think of her as being in in the Marx Brothers in A Night at the Opera, where she plays a similar kind of part, an opera star.
0: You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast.
1: I think also that sort of costume change element might be a good way into the other assignment, (laughs) which features a lot of costume changes. I'm maybe not the greatest at that sort of transition. (laughs) Um,
0: No, but but, pageantry is definitely a mm -hmm. great, great segue to the other film, which I have to say, I mean, I know it was completely unplanned, but what a great double feature. Yeah. Uh, just about perfect, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, Ina, maybe you can, you know, tell us about.
1: Yeah, this is the film that Nellie assigned.
3: So, Honey Mockinson, I, what the date is 1998. I felt a huge amount of nostalgia watching this film. I had never seen it before. So, there is a club that is not so much rivaling, but has a cafe that is. Uh, kind of kind of a rival or sort of is trying to move towards a different kind of performance which would be karaoke.
1: And it it all takes place in this at in a fictional uh reservation yes. at the mm-hmm. Grand Grand Pine Reservation. And I think or it's Reservation
0: was, X, it's yeah. it's right. called in the opening credits.
1: Located I think somewhere in uh near Toronto, it would be my it was my guess mm-hmm. i don't know if you because yeah, it's
0: directed by shelly nero who is a canadian aboriginal filmmaker so i i assume that's what that's the setting right yeah i believe she's mohawk
1: yeah and then the character the the character honey moccasin is introduced at the end in voiceover right she's narrating her own birth and the death of her parents
0: Right, and she's the proprietor oh, okay. of Smokin' Moccasins. Such a great name. I mean,
1: when you say, and uh, we can continue with the plot summary, but quickly I wanted to talk about this idea of nostalgia. And what the nostalgia that I had was for the 90s, for 90s independent mm-hmm. mo- movies. It just immediately called back, like watching independent movies on VHS cassettes, you know? Because yeah. it mixes
0: so many modes and it, um, it really is so unique. Um, but yeah, let's we'll get to that. But I know, uh,
3: go on. It is kind of like Murder at the Vanities. It's it's sort of built between a sequence of performances. What happens in between is kind of set into place by these more extended songs. Uh, speaking of dress and costumes. There's a, a, a subplot of stolen costumes or pr- stolen dress. And then also a, a finale of most of archival and made-up archival footage that kind of resolves the, the story.
1: It's a very madcap movie, mixing a lot of different styles and genre, referencing a lot of different genres. But it's also really homemade feeling. And there's this real homespun quality to it. But uh, Nellie, did you want to jump in?
2: can to you- Cardenal, the main woman, is uh, an actress who's been in a number of things over the years and also has a role in the Scorsese movie. Oh, wow.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's also really fun that this is also whodunit because the central thing is that those powwow costumes are being stolen from people's homes and Honey Moccasin, who's this singer cafe proprietor also becomes a detective to track down the this thief. but Nellie maybe you could tell us a little bit about why you chose it and also you know there's a it's it's screening right now in an event right so tell us some of that yes. context
2: so it's a movie that had been up online for a few days and it's part of San Francisco Cinematheque has been doing a series with the Cousin Collective which um is a collective um Adam uh, Peron, uh, Adam and Zach Khalil, Alexandra Lazrovic, all um, Indigenous filmmakers who, through this collective, support the work of other Indigenous filmmakers who are making sort of experimental, more experimental work. And this is, I believe, the third program they've done in this series with San Francisco Cinematheque, and I've missed the first two. So it was a way to like make myself uh, watch this and also everything I'd read, you know, it was one of those things where the listing came across my, you know, feed or whatever. And I read the description of the movie and I was like, this sounds incredible. It's sort of this uh, video art narrative combination. Uh, It's a woman filmmaker from, you know, Whatever, it's just like a lot of stuff that I feel like I've probably like brushed past it, researching other things and never noticed it before. So I was super excited to watch it. And um, when this homework thing came up, I it didn't occur to me, uh, originally that, that it wouldn't also be homework for me. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, perfect. And I'm not quite sure when this is going to air, but the movie will be available for free online until the 15th and um, on June 5th, there's going to be an event, uh, I believe with the director where you can hear a little bit more about the film and um, a conversation about its making. Aside from being you know, on this kind of basic level of being like this kind of cabaret style film, that is an analog to uh, Murder at the Vanities and also having this sort of um, element of like a mystery and like a detective and all this. So much of the movie is also about um, sort of authenticity and performance and sort of cultural authenticity who can like, do what types of art, what types of performance, like what, you know, what constitutes a fake and all of this, which I think is very interesting in the context of murder at the vanities, where again we also have a lot of stuff about sort of, you know, representation, sort of bad object re- representation. So it seemed like such a like rich double feature.
0: Yeah. I, I loved this. I also had, I mean, I never heard of it, honestly. So this um, I'm so glad you put it on my radar Nelly, and and I do want to emphasize the artistry of this film. There's so many different elements and every single element feels very well thought out and inventive and playful. Even the opening credits oh, which, yeah. is, oh, right? which is right? Re-
1: very simple, Yeah, definitely.
0: Opening credits Hall of Fame for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. One of the best. Um, and it's kind of uh, all the actors names in rope work and bead work. And they are lit by a match. And there's a character. There's a person you don't see who lights a match and then kind of illuminates each name one by one. And exclaims, "Ooh, ooh!" You know, <laughs> at each, and then they, and then it burns his finger each time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then he switches to a flashlight. You know, at yeah. the end, mm-hmm. and I think that, that is maybe uh, it sets up the film really well. I didn't think of it, ret- you know, until later retrospectively. But it is a lot about the opposition of tradition and modernity, uh, about you know the past and your culture, cultural identity, and. Adapting, appropriating culture—you know, changing through time—and so that stick versus flashlight dichotomy is also repeated later in the film when the elders decide that the costumes, the power costumes, have been stolen, but we're still go- we are going to stage this fashion show that yeah. uses elements other than the traditional beads and feathers. It's this uh, recycled, you know, version of off the show and off the power dresses. And they're now made using bottle caps and fruit loops. And Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, elements. Uh, There was one more thing that was just random. Yeah. Bicycle tires, all these items of waste. And I guess the point is that I I was really struck by this idea of, you know, this isn't a film about native identity as one thing, and I was I was reading an article about the film and it, it had this phrase that really struck me that the film works against the museumization of the native as a noble figure of the past and how the film is, you know, thinking of native identity in in a much more vibrant present where there's all these forces on the reservation. There's the villain who's Zachary, uh, who ha- was the owner of the Inukshuk cafe.
1: Who's really into his new karaoke yeah. machine. Yeah. 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 Karaoke yeah. Is like <laughs> thing.
0: And he keeps talking about this new Asian technology karaoke, and he's into health food and mineral water. Uh, and, you know, he's kind of the, um, I guess the embodiment of this, New, modern, wanting to revitalize culture in a different way. He's that force.
1: You, know, you also have Willie Dunn in, appearing in the movie, who's a great uh, aboriginal folk singer, Canadian folk singer, who, uh, whose music is, you know, much more rooted in American folk and country music than in aboriginal music. But he appears at the very end as Hank. Um, but he's sort of a, a major figure in that in that music genre.
2: I think it's, you know, another sort of aspect I hadn't thought about is there is this kind of the studio system, all the talent on display. This is also just such a, you know, every scene has like a number of just incredibly talented performers. Everyone's so funny. I mean, the entire movie is so funny.
0: Especially Billy Marasty is the name of the actor who plays Zachary, who is who is gay and very campy and even does a little drag show bit. Yeah. Incredible. So funny.
2: <laughs> yeah, and like so like catty about like the um, you know, the rivalry between these two clubs. I will say a comparison has been made to Twin Peaks and I feel like next yeah. to the Roadhouse in Twin Peaks, um I feel like the Smoke and Moccasin is the bar I want to hang out in when things are back <laughs> in full capacity.
1: <laughs> a little less, yeah, a little, a little more likely to have it seems more fun. Things out, mm. things work out well for everybody. No, but the tw- Twin Peaks comparison is interesting. I think that's also that kind of 90s vibe that I was picking up on.
0: And the small town, self-contained little place that has its own customs and history and quirky characters.
1: I also th- read that scene with Zachary in in the basement when he's trying on all of the uh, native costumes that he's stolen. Spoiler alert, another spoiler. Um <laughs> I read that as kind of a play on uh, Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> Did anybody, which was, I mean, I just sort of like a engagement with pop culture where they're just kind of picking up on things and bringing them in and using them and kind of throwing them to the side again.
2: I mean, I think if there's like one criticism of the movie, it is that the gay character is this kind of villain.
0: And he's the force of consumerism and superficiality. Yeah. Um Which made me uncomfortable.
2: But he's, the performer is so good. And I do feel like the way that it resolves itself with this kind of like, okay, like we figured out how to rectify this. There's no sort of like real break or anything with it It does kind of redeem that sort of. Yeah,
0: for me, I, so I was a little wary of that, even though I was enjoying his performance so much. I mean, he's also so good looking and it's, you know, so vivacious it was a little weird to have this, you know, uh, this guy be the villain, but I don't think he's just the villain. Like the film complicates that a little bit, and I was really struck by how they resolve when he's found. You know, there's a scene in which he and his dad are in a car with blinking lights, and I thought the cops, but no, they find this communal solution where they just make him return the clothes uh, in this, you know, one by one. And he's not ostracized or anything. In fact, he then ends up acting in Mabel's next student film... And my favorite line in the film is when she thanks him for his appearance uh, at a screening and she says he's like a brother to me and he says to the person sitting next to him she had to say that I wasn't paid anything. <laughs> oh, it's so on point so I can't even take him as a villain cuz he's actually spitting some facts.
1: And when he's discovered by Honey, she also she you expect her to be shocked he's been stealing all these sacred artifacts but then she just kind of laughs and she thinks it's a really like funny situation. So the, so yeah, you th- you think that he's this criminal and that he's this villain, but really he, it's all just sort of uh part of this bigger, it's almost like a family, a family affair.
3: Yeah. That's what I was thinking that it's really, it's like the way that he's, uh, you know, I had a moment where I was kind of like, is this, is this characterization bothering me or you know, am I think, am I looking back at this from a contemporary position? And I think that it really did. I really did start to think of it as a family. Like you have, you know, the, the, the person who's just like causing trouble in some kinds of ways. And it's not, and it's, it's a way to distinguish yourself within the family, but without, um, without breaking away completely.
1: And he also says when he's caught, I think, uh, Pluto is a larger town that's nearby that is is referenced throughout like a big city or mm-hmm. small city and he says I want to go back to Pluto people understand me there like <laughs> but it's almost just like a kid yeah coming home from college who's mad that he has to be in a small town and and kind of restricted in his activities.
0: He's like Ladybird. <laughs> right. <laughs>
2: Just like making his parents do like karaoke. Right. <laughs> I
0: <don't>
1: love it. <laughs> Just constantly trying to push karaoke on everybody yeah. around him.
0: Yeah. And also, I don't know, I think the film succeeds for me in another way, which is it acknowledges the influence of white and settler colonial culture, right, in, in certain moments, like... Um, in the opening sequence, when uh, the newscaster talks about World War II and there's images from World War II and sort of a nod to the fact that there were Native soldiers uh, in World War II. And then also a very funny moment when Honey describes how she was named <laughs> and it t- her mother was asking her father for a melon. And the nurse, a white nurse, just goes, Melon, okay, I'm gonna change that to Melanie. And um, she says, "Honey, melon." So I guess that's what uh, went on the birth certificate. And this idea of, you know, the nurse doesn't even, even bother to consider that this woman might be saying something else. It's probably her idea of how, oh, how these people name their children. You know, doesn't someone say it's, it's lucky there wasn't a banana in the room? <laughs> the dad? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know he says that, but you know, at despite all those little things this is really a film that's about the community it's not this happens a lot with you know films about people of color where the film is about them defining themselves against or in opposition to white people right or against assimilation but this is about this community and their internal differences and diversity so certain forces the elders there are people who represent you know the youngsters represent newer or modern ideas you know I like. I really like that it's really about the community defining its own identity within processes of of change.
1: And even the media that they consume is self generated. Uh, there's that scene where Honey is talking to a friend at at her bar, and then the, they stop and go, "Hey, it's you!" And they look at the TV, and her friend is d- interviewing Zachary about his new cafe. On the mm-hmm. local news show, and I think that happens. And then they're watching TV later, and they go, "Oh, hey, look, it's Johnny John, the Jackery's father, on TV again." So it's even the the images that they see on screens are of themselves and of their and of the people that they know.
2: And I I do think that it was an all native production. And looking at, I mean, one thing that I I was looking at the screening highlights, and it it looks like it primarily. But it played at a lot of festivals that um, emphasize Native American work, which is interesting. It does seem like that its life was very much tied up in that as well. Um, But it should be seen by a larger community because it's, I mean, it's great. And it's also just so much fun. And it's 47 minutes, by yeah. the way. And it's very the lead. It's 47 <laughs> minutes.
1: <laughs> I have to say, I'm looking at Tantu Cardinal's Wikipedia page, and she had a very, very long and ongoing and illustrious career as an yeah. actress, oh, as a professional definitely. actress.
2: Even more so in Canada than here,
3: I think on stage as well as on screen.
1: She's in Unforgiven. Yeah, Candy Mountain she was in.
3: I was wondering if thinking about the the idea that the film is really not directed outwardly against, you know, white representations or that it's not doing that battle and that it is so nuanced about um, kind of internal family indigenous film that I wonder if that not hurt the film, but maybe the expectations. I mean, that to me seems very 90s, actually, that it's it's speaking to. At its own audience, but I'm wondering almost, you know, with its experimentation, it didn't seem like it was really part of the experimental film world. And that might be because of its, you know, humor and its sort of concentration on representation, but it doesn't fit into the, any of those kind of particular modes.
0: It also plays with melodrama, which is what makes a Twin Peaks comparison so apt, you know, it's self-referentially soapy, Maybe that also sort of distinguishes it a little bit from more, I guess, set ideas of experimental film. Yeah. I mean,
1: I kind of read the Mabel character as autobiographical, kind of the filmmaker telling her own story. Mabel, the the character, the daughter of Honey Moccasin, who has gone off to university to film school and then come back to present her, you know, New York art world projects yeah. to the small <laughs> community of people. <laughs>
3: Who welcome it, who welcome, who welcome that
1: work, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, and, it, and it, it's very, it's like about them, too.
3: Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. I was going to say sort of to that point about, you know, sort of where it fits in. I mean, one of the reasons that I guess I felt like I'd sort of something I might have brushed up on is I actually feel like so much work in the 80s and 90s that is sort of between documentary fiction, experimental art world you know, there's all these people that are making these kind of like pop um objects in film and video that seem in some ways to defy categorization or maybe didn't get like sort of uh you know streamlined into narratives of experimental or independent film I guess if those are the main threads that move forward but like there were outlets for the this type of work in the 80s and 90s that I feel like also don't exist now like Not just public TV, but like also there were so many sort of specific film festivals and university organizations, like sort of uh, non-theatrical. I mean, there was just like a lot of ways that films that were for a specific audience could reach that audience that I feel like you would think would be facilitated by the internet. But in some ways, it's kind of flattened that specificity, I think, in a lot of ways where now everything's for everyone.
0: It did remind me a little bit of The Watermelon Woman. I mean, maybe that's a slightly random connection, but the kind of mixing of these various categories, the reappropriating pop objects, making a film that feels very much within its own own specific uh, cultural world, you know, all that felt really in line. And also, I think of it because The Watermelon Woman was this almost like a communal, this community project, right? It came out of this queer subculture and, you know, the stories of how uh, Cheryl Denier raised money for it by auctioning off these pictures created by Zoe Leonard. And from what I was reading, this film, Honey Moccasin, also came out of a particular movement and moment in Native experimental filmmaking.
2: I should look more into this, but I couldn't find anything sort of in a cursory um, sort of look for more information that there was this sort of movement of more experimental Native American filmmakers in the 90s that Smoke Signals was sort of maybe adjacent to, but like, um, I'd be curious to see more. And I think Cousin would be a great place to ask because they seem to have their finger really on the pulse of um, a lot of interesting work that was, made, was being made that um, kind of defies categorization.
1: And uh, Smoke Signals also 1998, Sherman Alexi, right? And also featuring Tantu Cardinal. Oh. But much more of a kind of Sundance 90s indie mm-hmm. in that vein. What I'm surprised is that this sensibility that's on display here in Honey Moccasin, I feel like that could translate into something, you know, so a kind of Sundance Miramax hit.
0: But, you know, she's a photographer, painter, sculptor, bead worker, multimedia artist, and independent filmmaker. I mean, she's a truly interdisciplinary artist. I think this film is actually a pretty nice showcase for a lot of the things she does. You know, there's a lot of bead work in it. There's also that sculpture of an Inuit in front of the Inshisuk Cafe, and it uh, comes up again in the experimental Film that ends uh, ends the movie, and you know clearly the multimedia artist aspect is evident in the film's mixing of modes and the TV scenes and the experimental film and the more straightforward um, you know sixteen millimeter scenes. So I do think there's feels like a very specific kind of artistic artifact to me that couldn't translate to a studio film.
1: This is a good time to wrap things up. We also wanted to ask you guys about any other recent things you've seen that you might want to talk about any viewings that have jumped out or that may or may not be
0: related to assign our listeners more homework before you leave <laughs> well,
3: <laughs> i was watching from chicago film archives their leader ladies um which i think has just ended but there's a, a film of the um the women's faces that they use to calibrate film color. They have on the leader of films. And so it's a compilation of these figures that have been culled from a number of different films with dialogue from, I think, 42nd Street. But it's talking about what um, a woman's chances is in Hollywood. And and, and, that, and that kind of jumped into my mind when I was looking at Murder at the Vanities again. And my other assignment would be not a film, but um, uh, the artist Jeffrey Gibson, he's a Native artist who works across painting, costumes, bead work. He works with traditional craftspeople. And seeing Jeffrey's work over time had really set something off when I saw Zachary in putting on the, um, the outfit with the, um, with the bugle or the, the, the beads that, that sound there was great resonances between Jeffrey's work as an artist and community person and this film. So
2: I actually saw my first movie in the theater last night. Ooh. So shout oh, out to the, man. Yeah, the Balboa theater in San Francisco. I saw a 16 millimeter print of night of the living dead. And they also showed a print of Popeye the sailor, the first uh, Popeye cartoon. Oh my God. Uh, you
1: know, I've been wanting to do a uh, podcast about those those Popeye cartoons. I, think, <laughs> yeah. it I was, think it'd be the, a hard sell, but I love the Popeye cartoon.
2: Uh, the Fleischer Brothers cartoons generally are yeah. so great. And I feel like there's a number of people that would like, uh, that are such like heads about that, that would jump to be on a podcast for <laughs> sure. God, I've watched such weird movies lately. Um, don't watch Mortal Kombat. Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> you heard and, it uh, here, folks.
2: The first few minutes are pretty good. And then it pretty much goes off the rails. Um A person who I've been like sort of into in the last year, who a number of people have, I feel like this has probably come up on your podcast and maybe in different ways, but Fred Walton, who's a filmmaker who made like a lot of direct to TV stuff. He's best known for like When a Stranger Calls, When a Stranger Calls Back, The Sitter. But I've seen a bunch this year. I just watched Trapped, which is um, Kathleen Quinlan is like a woman who works in like a high rise building and it's like a, it's kind of almost like Gremlins, but like just a horror drama uh, where she gets trapped in this building with someone who's trying to uh, kill her, kill everyone in the building. There's a mall at the bottom level that's empty. There is another one called April Fool's Day where like all of these like, it's 86 and it's like all of these like Preppy teens go to like an island in the Pacific Northwest, uh, an heiress named Muffy. And like then they start getting just like picked off. Uh, <laughs> they're great. I mean, he's like a really good director, like the sitter when a stranger calls and then when a stranger calls back are all <laughs> excellent. Uh, With When a Stranger Calls Back maybe being the best one. When a Stranger Calls is 79 and it's a sort of continuation of The Sitter, which is a short film that's basically the first few minutes and Carol Kane's in it as the babysitter. 14 years later in 1993, um, a direct to Showtime sequel uh, (laughs) called When a Stranger Calls Back that is so excellent. I mean, I've talked about this on other podcasts, I'm sorry, but not about... Trapped or April Fools. Carol Kane is now like a um a counselor who helps young women who've experienced similar violence against babysitters, (laughs) and a similar case comes up. But anyways, really fun and like just like a you know a genre director that I feel like it's been like a pleasure to find a new, you know, person to be excited about in that.
3: Yeah,
0: ah, that might be just what I need, honestly.
3: Oh, you guys yeah. are assigning. I not- think we should. I think oh. we should do
1: something. Oh, I guess. Yeah. We <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, wriggled out of. Both it. of us <laughs> have been pretty like only watching stuff for work. Mm-hmm. I will say that's been the case with me. But I did watch this uh, 1984 action movie called Flashpoint, starring Chris Christopherson <gasps> and um, Treat Williams and Rip Torn. <laughs> and it's it's like pretty good i would say i was i was actually i thought it was pretty cool it has a soundtrack by tangerine Dream, so it's like what, what could go wrong everything chris, is great about that yeah chris kristofferson and and uh treat williams play border patrol agents who are kind of like party guys like they go into the office and are like you can't tell us what to do like we're doing our <laughs> own thing and then they discover a skeleton and in a car with a huge bag of money and uh they decide to keep it but it, like there's a lot of J- there's some J- jfk conspiracy theory action happening and rip Torn plays an old sheriff he's like playing a much older character than he was i think at that time and he just kind of totally steals every scene that he's in um it's it's a strange movie with like and every character actor who appears it's just like th- it's good like is interesting uh i have never seen any other films by william tannin was directed by william Tannen, but uh it was just i like chris christopherson a lot so
3: with that many <laughs> character actors there must be so there must be at least like 30 characters just from those you know four yeah, guys just like random
1: <laughs> yeah random people pop in oh let's see who else is it miguel ferrer is in it
2: I love that it's just like it's like oh who's next
1: kevin Kevin conway is really good in it fbi it's like an fbi guy who like knows what happened to jfk and isn't and isn't gonna tell um anyway that's that's my it's not really homework that's definitely like for slackers homework for slackers
0: that's recess that's recess. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i also have not watched much that isn't related to work uh you know just squeezing out time but I will shout out some films I saw recently by Christine Choi as part of the Third World Newsreel. There was a Third World Newsreel did a showcase as part of AAPI History Month, and they screened um, some of Christine's films. Unfortunately, the CDs has ended, so I can't just link people. But you know, there's other ways of watching those films. And I was really struck by a couple of them. Uh, one of them's called Homes Apart Korea, in which Basically, Christine Choi and a couple others, JT Takagi and a you know, a few members of the Third World Newsreel, they visited North Korea and South Korea, and they kind of detailed the process of, first of all, getting permits to visit both. So obviously, visiting North Korea is pretty challenging. But then visiting South Korea afterwards was also complicated because South Korean officials were very suspicious of um, why they'd been to North Korea and wanted to see the footage to see like in what light. North Korea was portrayed, um, and yeah, it follows a few characters, particularly one uh, man who was separated from his sister during the division of Korea, and has, you know, hasn't met her for years. He lives in California at the time, you know, when the film was being made, so because he has an American passport, he's able to go to North Korea. If he was a South Korean citizen, he wouldn't have been able to, and they follow him and, you know, kind of follow his trip and actually film his reunion with his sister. It's so moving. Uh, You know, they just burst into tears, both of them. And it's a really lovely film that captures both the personal and the political aspects of the, you know, Korean War and U.S. imperialism in Southeast Asia and the division of the Koreas. And I think especially today, because you don't really see images of North Korea, you know, and everything you see, especially in the US, is so colored by how America looks at that part of the world, that it was just very informative to see actual footage shot in Korea, even though it was very much apparently dictated by North Korean officials what they could and couldn't film. But still, they caught... Moments of candor, you know, they filmed children in classrooms in both South and North Korea. It was also a really great reminder for me, something that people forget is so much of the Asian diaspora in the West is created by Western acts of Western imperialism in the past. And yeah, it's just so tragic that people sharing the same culture, the same sort of piece of land, get arbitrarily not just divided, which has happened in so many parts of the world, but unable to communicate with each other, unable to, you know, reunite. There's so many families split up by that political decision. So, yeah, I was really taken by the film and highly recommend that and all the other films that came out of that particular moment. I guess that is a more homework
3: (laughs) note. (laughs) That sounds like,
1: that sounds great.
2: There is I think a fun short about Christine Choi that one of her students made about her about her smuggling cigarettes into the United States uh <laughs> that I think is online if you want to get like a sense of what she's like cuz she's like a real character I think too. Yeah oh, cool. I did a
0: panel with her actually related to that series that's how I ended up watching them and she's really no-holds-barred and even in <laughs> uh Homes Apart Korea you know she has these moments where she just says things like I just got pissed that, you know, uh, I just got tired of being dictated by these officials. So I just told them off and I went off and I filmed this. And, you know, (laughs) she just had this her because she narrates it and she has such a very impulsive and the kind of voiceover that I guess you don't expect because voiceovers tend to be, especially when about political films, they tend to be so knowledgeable and buttoned up. And Mm -hmm. she just speaks from the heart and is very, yeah, emotional and impatient. It was fun. (laughs)
1: Legal smuggling with Christine (laughs) Choi was the name of the short. (laughs) Tracked down. Well, thank you guys all. Thank you guys both so much for joining and for sharing all of your wisdom and thoughts and for your assignments.
0: Thank you. One of the few times I've enjoyed homework. So thank you. I know, (laughs) I (laughs) know.